Hey, Jeff Johnston here, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, I'm so excited to have my special guest and new good friend, uh, Bailey Farinon from uh, California. I don't remember what town specifically. I should know. Um, but, you know, our story is kind of funny. So I, I actually, I, when I introduce you, I want to go a little bit about how we met um, and just sometimes how randomness is so awesome, you know, and kind of how your path just intertwines with somebody and you don't really know why, but you know, there's something in there. So, um, but super excited to have you on the show. I mean, you're going to bring a really neat perspective today from what we normally hear on the show, but I do think in the market that you're in Bailey, that there's a lot we can discuss that, um, permeates all things, mental health, um, you know, things like that, that are so close to my heart. But anyway, Bailey, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. And it was great to meet you in person. So serendipitously on an airplane. And yeah. I am in Berkeley, California. Berkeley. I think you went to Berkeley, right? I did. That's what I thought. Um, okay. So I have to paint the backdrop here a little bit. So a lot of my guests I meet, I, I met them on LinkedIn. That's probably where I get most of my guests. And either I inject my opinion into some conversation or somebody comments on one of my posts. And the next thing you know, you know, they're on my podcast, I'm on their podcast. And um, our meeting was a little bit, you know, <laughs> uh, less formal, I guess. We were seated next to each other on a plane. And, you know, in the past, before all the stuff happened in my life, I, I was probably a lot more quiet. People probably would disagree with that, but I was a little bit more reserved. You know, I'd, reading my book or whatever. But when you sat down, I just felt like, you know, you seem like somebody that likes to talk uh, or have conversations, especially in a two and a half hour flight. And so we just started talking. And, you know, at some point I talked about my startup company. I was like really kind of proud that we have a startup, but you know, we're, <laughs> we haven't even launched yet. You know, we're so far pre-seed. It's not even funny. <laughs> And then you're like, well, yeah, I, I have one too. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, because I know you're young and I'm like, wow, that's, that's impressive. You know, I waited for, you know, a long time to start a startup. And so you started telling me about your startup company and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then we just started going down roads of spirituality and oneness with the universe and how we can help our fellow humans improve their well-being. And it was just like, all of a sudden the flight was over. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, man, I want to continue talking to this person. She's very engaging and just somebody that I have just lots of questions for because I admire what you've done at such a young age. And we have so many commonalities in regards to interests with um, some of the things that we discussed that we can share a little bit later on the show. But anyway, why don't you just tell a bit about what you do? Surprise our audience, because I think people looking at you wouldn't see kind of what you run and what you, you know, as a founder and CEO of a startup, kind of what you came up with. The story behind it is beautiful. I mean, where this whole thing started, you know, I'd like to have you share that. So yeah, yeah. tell us about per Perimeter. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Perimeter? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, where this came from and uh, why it's important to you. Absolutely. So the long story short is Perimeter is a mapping platform that me and my team started to help first responders share information with each other and with the public during natural disasters. And a few years ago before I started this, I never could have imagined that I would be in some kind of 
data science public safety company. But I'm from a place called Santa Rosa, which is in Northern California, and most recently pretty famous for the wildfires that we've been having in mm. our community. And mm -hmm. I have been evacuated with my family five times in the past eight years from fires mm. out there. And my parents are both first responders in the community. So my dad was a firefighter. And during one of the, the most devastating fires, it was called Tubbs. I was being evacuated. I was helping my mom get out. And we had no information about what to do, where to go, which roads were safe, if there were shelters, if there were hazards we needed to avoid, mm. where the fire was, etc. And meanwhile, I'm a college student at UC Berkeley, which is about an hour away. I was there in Santa Rosa to help my mom get out. And I'm kind of swimming in, in technology, it seems, because I'm at I'm at this university that's kind of living right next to Silicon Valley, right? The, right. the tech capital of the world. And so I have, I have apps and you know, technologies to help me get any information that I could want. I can track a, you know, a burrito every meter on its way <laughs> to my apartment as it's being yep, delivered. You can. But when I, really needed to leverage technology most when I needed those answers, we didn't have anything. And at first I thought like, how could this be? First responders, the firefighters, they must have all this information they need to respond to the fire. They must know where that, where that, where the fire is, where the hazards are, where the roads are closed, right. et cetera. They, they must just not have a way of getting that information to residents like us. And I started interviewing folks at the fire department and the other public safety agencies. And what I found out is my assumption was totally incorrect. Mm. The first responders didn't have information either. So my dad, what were, they, what were they, what were they going off of? They use paper maps and radios. Oh man. And so their way of getting situational awareness data. So information about what's happening around them is almost entirely from radio between folks on scene. And if let's say a, a fire, uh, a chief is trying to track someone like my dad, who's out in the field, the way that he does that right now is basically will draw like, okay, what's your location? Let me use my Sharpie and draw you on a map and then check in again two hours later. And oh, so- wow, that's, this, that's that with lives on the line, that's just insane. Exactly. Yeah, that's how it was operated. How many? So that's been operating that way for a long time. Yeah. There's this. There's this phrase in the fire service specifically that says 200 years of um, 200 years unimpeded by progress. <laughs> 200 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. And so, um, yeah, we are we are literally using World War II technology mm. to respond to the kind of natural disasters we've just never seen before. The fires that have been, you know, that we've seen in the past few years are just, I mean, record setting doesn't, doesn't speak to the half of it. It's just the fires and other incidents, um, hurricanes, yeah, et cetera, like to, have been worse. I'd like to talk, I'd like to talk about that a little bit later for sure, because I'd like to get your thoughts on that whole, whole um, picture there. Yeah. But um, so, you know, the systems are pretty outdated, pretty archaic, and you've come up with this idea while in college that, hey, you know, we should be embracing the newer technology, the, the speed of information, you know, especially with 
you know, lives at stake, you know, your, yeah. your parents for one, that, that was your kind of your why, right? I mean, at a minimum, you wanted to make this a little bit safer, a lot safer for those people that, you know, you care about the most. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was making decisions about like, am I going to apply for a job or am I going to do this super crazy idea that most people are telling me can't be done? Like, am I really going to try to do that when I'm 22? Why were they telling you that? Because of like your age maybe, or the fact you're female or was it just these stigmas, these stigmas out there that were biasing people's opinions? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there were, there were a lot of, of compounding reasons First and foremost, I think the space that we're operating, like government technology, is one that Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley investors tends to shy away from. GovTech is a very unpopular, um, <laughs> unpopular business model. Just because of red tape? Or... Yeah, because of red tape and each government agency operates a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. they might be neighboring counties in the same state but they might have a completely different way of doing things. And so there's so many hoops to jump through that it's just way more convoluted than selling, let's say to a big business that's, that might be mm. a little bit more straightforward. That doesn't have right. procurement thresholds and you know all of these times set up for legal reasons. Um, right. And so one, they said, that's just really hard. And yes, I think as a 22 year old young woman, they saw me wow. and they're like, she has no idea what she's getting into. And as soon as she realizes how hard this is, she's going to quit. And oh, I, they missed the they <laughs> underestimate underestimated Bailey. <laughs> yeah, and I I think that given my high energy levels, people meet me and they assume that I'm you know, with regards to like the the tortoise versus the hare, they meet me and they're going to think, oh, high energy, she's going to be the hare, she's going to burn out, she's going to go super right. quick, she's going to you know end up crashing somewhere. Yeah. But the way that I operate is much more like a tortoise. I'm just slow and methodical and consistent mm-hmm. every day for years. Mm-hmm. And I've needed to be. And I've wondered in the past, like, how could someone run a startup that they're not completely passionate about or obsessed with? Because for me, this journey has been so challenging that if I didn't feel like I needed to solve the problem, or at least make a dent in it that I don't know how I would have continued through some of those really hard times. But like you said, I knew when I was making that decision, like, do I apply for a job or do I do this crazy thing? I knew that these fires and other types of natural disasters were going to keep hitting my hometown specifically and the place that I'm from um, over the next few years, and if I, let's say I, I went and got another job in tech and I looked back and Santa Rosa got hit by another fire and people lost their lives, I would always know in the back of my mind that maybe I could have done something. Right. And I didn't want to live wondering what it would have been like if I just tried, even if it was going to be really hard. And I also think that, you know, that's the the purpose behind the passion. You know, the the saying, I have purpose becomes passion when it gets personal for you, it was personal. And then you found your passion, which ultimately revealed your purpose. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think the fact that you weren't motivated by the one thing that most people are with startups and that's money. You know, if you, you, if you can somehow, um, find that thing that lights your fire and find a way to solve a problem that 
other people haven't been able to do. It doesn't mean there aren't problem solvers already out there. They're just not doing it the right way to mm. fix the problem. Yeah. And I think that goes in your favor though, because the fact that you came in fairly naive means you don't have those cognitive biases that a lot of people would have. You know, I run into that in my situation because of the fact I'm older. So I tend to try to, I, I my critic in my mind keeps reminding me, Hey Jeff, you know, you shouldn't be, you're, you're in a young person's world. You know, you shouldn't be doing a startup at your age, but you can play that game. You can say, well, this is a male dominated world. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we, I think we all can find a, like I tell my boys all the time, you can find reasons to do something or you can find reasons not to do something. Right. So I think, I think being naive has helped you and I both. Yeah. I think you you're know. absolutely right. If I, people try I don't to mean, I don't mean naive <laughs> to be negative. I mean, naive just because it's so unknown. We don't know what we're really doing until we do it. Yeah. And I totally agree. When I was starting Perimeter, a lot of investors and, you know, previous startup executives told me, you know, you should really like, you seem smart. You should try to do something that is actually achievable, you know? Yeah. And this is just going to be so much harder than you can imagine. And I'm really glad that I didn't know because in a world where I wouldn't have tried to do this, like I would much rather live in the world where I do. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I agree. I think that my naivete at that point and that kind of, um, that belief that we'll be able to figure it out, even when a lot of data points to the contrary, I think mm-hmm. is, is absolutely necessary for making mm-hmm. changes that have otherwise not really been made for 200 years. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about that I know my listeners and followers would have an interest in getting your thoughts on is, you know, I do a lot of talk with advocates that are pretty heavy in the mental health area of first responders. And uh, at our expo we had back in May, I had a panel discussion, which I moderated. And some of the comments that the police officers and the, uh, the fire, fire, um, firemen, fire women, fire people, I don't, I'm not sure what the correct term is. Mm-hmm. Firefighters. Thank you. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled. Um, but uh, you know, some of the stories they told me were just, horrific. And then yeah. they had to go home, you know, and change clothes and put on their sweats and their t-shirt and sit down on the couch and watch TV. If they have that opportunity, sometimes they're called back to work again, but I'm like the sacrifices that they make, you know, we need to have programs and systems and processes to protect them. Like, like, like you've come up with, you know, to give them the ability to, to, um, to go home and see their families, you know, not just see them, but see them in a way where, their, their frame of mind is good. You know, the PTSD levels for first responders are through the roof compared to the normal mainstream jobs. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on, what's your thoughts on kind of a little bit of a segue from what you specifically founded, mm-hmm. but what's your thoughts just overall with first responders and mental health and, and where do you see <clears throat> the future of say things like PTSD and depression and, and alcoholism and the suicide rates are higher as well, but Mm-hmm. what's your what's your thoughts on that yeah you know I'm not sure when we were sitting next to each other on a plane if I I brought up the work that I've been doing with my mom who started a nonprofit specifically to help first responders proactively to mitigate the impacts of PTSD because mm-hmm. it's not really a a question of if it's a it's a matter of when a first responder right. is going to be exposed to traumatic events on a very regular basis. And, you know, my work with 
her organization, First Responders Resiliency Inc. You know, this is not it's not my nonprofit, but I I tend to go to as many of her conferences as possible, and it has been such an honor for me to be working in the public safety space and simultaneously able to attend these conferences where we're having incredibly real conversations about what the reality is for first responders. And it is, like you said, you know, their suicide rates are through the roof. Their organ cancer is drastically higher than it would be for a non-first responder. And that's actually why my mom started this nonprofit in the first place, because she had um, she had organ cancer a few years ago. Originally, mm. it was a terminal diagnosis. And the surgeon said to her, yeah, I see a lot of this in first responders. And she said, what? You see a lot of what in first responders? And he said, organ cancer. And mm. so my mom ended up going on this in this deep, and she got into this deep research to understand like what's going on with the physiological responses of our bodies to the stress that we as first responders are experiencing. Mm. And, you know, she started, she started with originally that, you know, that research and it just opened her eyes to how a lot of the stress, like you mentioned, you know, it might happen on scene and it doesn't, you know, it still comes home with you unless you yeah. learn how to discharge some of that energy and, you know, learn to create practices in your life that help you not just, you know, mentally and emotionally process the trauma, but also physiologically process in a way that <clears throat> helps reduce the, the chances of disease. And my mom has this great quote, um, that I, I love when she says this, is I think it's so clear. She says that if the number one leading cause of disease and illness is stress, which it is, mm -hmm. then the number one thing you can do to reduce disease is reduce stress. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, the tools and techniques that she you know, works with first responders on are designed to help them basically transform that stress that they're exposed to and that trauma that they're exposed to so that it's not having an impact on, you know, their, their, their lifespan and their relationships in a, in a toxic way. Yeah. It's uh, I think I saw the other day that uh, first responders have 10 times the suicidal ideation, you know, um, and the rates for actually, completing the act of suicide are, are substantially higher as well. So it's like, it's all hands on deck. And so even though, you know, you and I have different organizations um, and everyone watching this, it's in the space will have the same, you know, no one's got the same organization. We're all trying to do the same ultimate goal and that's either save lives or put people in a situation where their lives and their quality of life and their well being is all enhanced. Yeah. You know, so we had a very good conversation on ways that you and I both self-care, mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, I know I want to respect your privacy as well. So I'll share kind of some of the things that I'm comfortable on my end and you can jump in as, as, as you want. But I think for me, meditation was a big thing that we discussed and kind of how I, you know, as a secular person, as somebody that's really never felt compelled to 
attach myself to some celestial being in time of need, or maybe as a reward, if I, Hey, if I'm good, I go to heaven Mm -hmm. or some type of a thing to avoid punishment. You know, if I'm good, I don't go to hell. You know, I, I really struggled with how do you become a passionate advocate for mental health if you don't have, um, that belief structure yet I'm very spiritual. I think that's where you and I had about an hour conversation on peeling back the layers of spirituality. And so meditations really helped me a lot. Um, mindfulness has helped me specifically with meditation. Um, what's your thoughts on, maybe we can start with, uh, mindfulness, meditation, those type of things. And then, um, where spirituality comes into, to helping you get through, well, not, I think get through sounds bad. We don't want to survive. We want to thrive, <clears throat> right? We, we don't want to just get through our day. We want to have amazing days. Yeah. So what, what are some things you do that, uh, helps with your self-care? Yeah. So, you know, meditation is, is a definitely a big one for me, but the thing that has really changed my life from a mental health perspective is writing. And I remember you, know, you talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that really unlocked my ability to meditate more effectively is learning that having someone tell me that, you know, it's not, if you have a thousand thoughts a minute and you just recognize a thought and release it, then you're doing meditation correctly. I used to think that meditation was about getting rid of your thoughts and not having Me too. thoughts. Me and too. so when or I controlling heard, them, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And so when I learned that, oh, I'm having tons of thoughts, but I'm saying, oh, that's a thought, I'm gonna let it go. Mm. That that is, you know, that means that you're, you know, you're not you're not a bad meditator, like this is what meditation is for. So so that really helped me learn to meditate. But before I learned that, the one place where I could really lose myself and get grounded after a couple pages of writing was this writing process that mm. I started doing, not because I thought that journaling was suddenly a great idea. I started writing every day because I woke up every morning in a panic. Mm. I'd be sweating, my heart would be beating out of my chest, my eyes would open and I was already just completely gone. And I needed a solution that could help me immediately as soon as I woke up. And somebody recommended that I put a journal next to my bed. I'd never journaled before, it's not really my thing, but put a journal next to my bed and as soon as I wake up, start writing. And after a couple months, not only did that completely transform my anxiety and my panic in the morning, but it really unlocked a new level of spirituality for me that then enhanced my experience with meditation. And what I mean by that is, for me, I think spirituality, secular or not, can sometimes be um, kind of found and not that, I mean, obviously spirituality is a huge topic, but yeah. one of the like spiritual experiences that I often have is when I can kind of sink below or like get away from like all of the noise and find this really deep place of gratitude. And mm. when you're meditating and the stories and the noise, when you can release a lot of that, I think what's underneath for all of us is this peace and gratitude. And it's not a matter of, we don't need to add more things to our plate to find that kind of peace and freedom. 
I think it's more a matter of removing those things and then finding that place and releasing the stories that tell us that we're, we're not enough or we should be somewhere other than where we are or that our experience is wrong or, you know, X, Y, Z, anything our brains can come up with. And so for me, it's been a very like symbiotic relationship um, between meditation and writing because writing helps me recognize those stories in a way that's actually easier for me than just sitting with myself. If I write down the thoughts that are coming up, it's a lot easier for me to say like, oh, I can reframe that. Like I have a little bit of distance because yeah. I'm here and this is the page, you know? I love that. I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Dr. Richard Schwartz is the guy's, the gentleman's name. It's uh, on the Rich Rituals podcast, which I really like his podcast. And he was talking about how kind of exactly what you said, but Rich was asking him about the inner critic that we all have. Like, you know, where does this come from? Why does this, why is this person inside of us? You know, if there is a self and that's a mm -hmm. whole different conversation on free will and all that, but it's like, this guy was saying, well, you got to remember your inner critic is a part of evolution that was there to give you safety, you know, to protect you. But the problem is a lot of our inner critics are still stuck at, you know, age seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Although our bodies are, you know, biologically we're a certain age, but that inner, inner critics never grown up and yeah. it hangs on the petty things. And I'm like, and this guy was talking about, you know, not, not not like we have multiple personalities that that's, that's a different whole different podcast, but he was talking more about if we can almost like you said, reframing or kind of use a little stoicism to kind of look at, you know, that inner critic, we're not trying to silence the inner critic. Mm -hmm. We're trying to, we're trying to get the inner critic to mature and grow up and be mm -hmm. more reflective to what we're going through today. And so I don't know if that makes any sense, but what I got from that was, that there's, there's elements of us that make us human, mm -hmm. anxiety, sadness, depression, things like that. And if we understand that that inner critic can actually be an ally, you know, be a source of strength or a source of, Hey, Jeff, you know, Hey Bailey, maybe you ought to look at things this way. Maybe, maybe that person is giving you good advice. Don't be so stubborn. So I'm trying to look at all these voices in my head is actually trying to help me survive. Mm -hmm. And, and, and do better in my life as opposed to holding me back, like trying to silence the inner critic. It's just a yeah. new way to look at it. You know, it's a new way to look at it because I think it's part of our, um, part of our attraction is trying to silence everything or to stop, you know, numb the pain they say, or time heals all wounds. <clears throat> and it's like, I, you know, I think we talked on a plane about, I'm not really convinced that that's what I want to do. I don't want the memories of my son and my wife to go away. Just forget about them, you know? So I'm not sure where I got off on that, but I think it was kind of looking at the meditation angle and kind of, we talk to ourselves all day long and, you know, we're always, we're always free to tell ourselves a different story about our past. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be the tragic, unfortunate one, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I really actually resonate with this idea of there being different, not voices, not like, right. you know, different people in my head, but. I think we can all relate to the idea of having like, okay, I have an inner critic and I recognize that that's not me, you know? Right. But without meditation and without writing, the challenge is when you identify with that voice and you think that it is you, it's, mm -hmm. it's even more painful. And what I, there's, 
I learned about this, this um, type of therapy called internal family systems. Uh, that's, that's, that's the guy I just mentioned. Oh, IFS. amazing. Yeah. IFS. Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> talk about odd. This is the way our conversation went on the play by on the plane, by the way, people watching this is every time we brought up a topic, we're like, Oh my God, that's exactly who Dr. Richard Swartz. I think he's the founder of IFS. No way. I was just, no. I was thinking of the acronym in my head before you said it. That that's what it incredible. is. Yeah. That's that is and, hilarious. Cause we did not rehearse that. Wow. That's amazing. And I'm not surprised, but no, I, not at all. I discovered this. I, I, I don't know if it's his book actually that I read, but I, I read a book about IFS. it's the multiplicity of the mind. That's the name of the podcast. And it's Dr. Richard Swartz. And I'm pretty sure he's the founder of IFS. Anyway, oh, go ahead. Amazing. Well, I'd love to meet it, but anyway, mm. um, so I discovered IFS and it completely transformed my relationship with myself because for the past few years I have responded to my inner critic as something that I wanted to destroy. Like right, I didn't me want too. to have an inner critic. Like I just right. wanted to go away and like, I can even feel my body right now, like getting angry at this yeah. part of me that will never let me catch mm. a break. Right. And when I learned about internal family systems, <laughs> the idea is that, you know, we have that these different parts of ourselves that we can actually develop a positive relationship, a healthy, nourishing relationship to those parts by communicating with them, by like loving them. Mm. And that they then when they are freed by our like love and attention, the inner critic has tons of skills, like you mentioned, that can yeah. be helpful. So right. for me, my quote unquote inner critic, when I'm writing and I'm not, you know, really paying attention and taking the time to respond to the inner critic. The inner critic is always saying, you suck. Your writing sucks. This is so boring. Mm -hmm. None of this mm -hmm. matters. Why are you writing? Please stop. Right. That's mm -hmm. what the inner critic, the inner critic wants me not to write and would be thrilled if I just, you know, if no one ever read anything that I wrote, right. If I yeah. was born with potential and I died with potential. Right. And what I have realized through IFS is, well, that inner critic is the same part of me that helps me after the fact with sentence construction and making sure yeah. that things flow and, you know, responds to grammar and looks for little mistakes that might trip up, you know, my, you know, my, my reader, even if that reader is just myself. And, and so I realized like, oh, I don't want to actually destroy my inner critic. I want to change our relationship and practice Perfect. Yeah. practice inviting my inner critic to, you know, like, yeah, you can, you can try to get me to stop writing. That's fine. Or I'll just write for now. And then after I would love like to invite that part of me in to give me the feedback that I need. And the way that I I've so done that. <laughs> I have so many questions for you on this topic. <laughs> well, I'll, I'd love to hear them. Let me um, just give you this tiny example that has helped me meditation because the idea of IFS is, is there's a, it's big. There's a lot that you can do, but how can we use some of these concepts in just 30 seconds with ourselves when we feel like we're kind of under attack by, let's say, the inner critic? One thing that I love to imagine when I'm meditating, even if it's just for a minute, is when I feel like I'm overwhelmed by a voice that says, like, I'm not enough, I suck, et cetera, et cetera. I imagine having a little 
pink spray bottle that's huh. like love foam. I know this is silly, but this really helps me. I imagine it's love foam. And instead of trying to strangle that part of me in my mind and get it to stop talking while I'm trying to meditate, instead, I imagine that I have a spray bottle of love and I just squirt it. Hmm. I'm just like, yeah. oh, like, oh, you know, oh, I'm not enough. Like, you, you suck. Like, stop writing. And I'm like, oh, right. it's like, oh, let me just spray you with love. Can you imagine getting sprayed in your face with like pink foam and not laughing? Like, it'd be the That's, silliest thing. Yeah. And yeah. so it always reminds me like, oh, I don't have to take this seriously. And what this part of me needs is my love, not my rejection. I mean, that's so awesome the way that you've thought of that in your mind, because I kind of play similar. I've never thought of pink love foam. But, um, <laughs> I can't believe um, I said that out loud. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, I, but I have that. I have it similar with grief for me. That's my, that's my, that's my, you know, uh, if I could be God for a day, if there is such a thing, I, I would, um, I would expunge that element of my life. But at the same time, when I feel grief coming, I don't fight it anymore. Like I think I told you in the plane, I kind of, I kind of think of it as like my mental health workout, like going to the gym. It's like part of it's necessary for me not to become, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, but we really don't want to get rid of all these emotions no. because then we're going to be that AI that we dread. We're going to be that artificial intelligence that we all think is going to take over humanity and we'll become that robotic sentient if we get away from having sadness and fear and anxiety and depression. Those are all things that keep us human. We just want to keep the lifespan of them very minimal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just, I think that IFS is something I'm going to get the guy's book. I'm going to listen to um, some more podcasts with him on it because that. And that's just crazy that you brought that up. Cause I literally just listened to that yesterday. I was driving in my car and I was listening to the podcast and I, and I was driving, which I write down. I mean, I got notes everywhere. I got a little bit of, but my problem is I don't go back and read them. That's, that's the problem. I have notes <clears throat> and notes and notes that I've never read, but, well, but I think it's something about just getting it in writing. I know I can always go back and read it later. I just always write down more things and I always fall behind on trying to read them. So I gave up on trying to read all my notes. Yeah, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I'm constantly writing, even just right here. I've got one notebook. I've got a second notebook. I've got three by five. Well, you cards. showed me one on the plane <laughs> right. and it was like, it was awesome. It was just like someone could like tap your brain and just pull words and sentences out mm -hmm. randomly. That's what your notebook was. And I, there's something about journaling and I, I, it's probably not talked about, especially with kids, mental health. I mean, I think I think with our app geared towards Gen Z, our Brighton app, if there's a way that we could get kids to journal more. So mm -hmm. you mentioned when you get up in the morning, you, you start writing. I, I have to ask you, are you writing your dreams? Are you writing just whatever the heck's in your mind? Because I know when I did that for a while, I'm happy I did because by 10 minutes of being awake, I already forgot what I dreamt about. I forgot <laughs> about even the fear or anxiety I had when I woke up. So what are you writing about when, when, when you yeah. get up in the morning? What's some of the things that, you know, you don't have to share the details, but like what type of things are you writing about? Yeah. So I'm actually not usually writing about my dreams unless I had a dream that really, really hit me in a way that right. I want to unpack later. But I have written down my dreams before and I, I've ended up getting just lost 
um, in the like, what could this mean? And what could this mean? I think there's yeah, a lot of value dreams to Dreams can be real subjective too. Exactly. And so I think what has been, what has been so helpful for me is waking up and just writing whatever the story is. So if I wake up and I'm like, I'm overwhelmed by X, Y, Z, the quota that I have for myself with writing, and I got this from a book called The Artist's Way, but my quota is three pages. And so mm. I'm committed to writing three pages, even though I don't feel like writing three pages. And I almost never feel like writing three pages. And this is every page, morning. This is every morning, three pages in the morning. It, for the first year, it was, it was mostly every morning. Now I, I want to give myself a little bit more time. And so I either write after work um, or I write when I'm feeling a lot of stress because my body has learned if I'm really anxious and I start writing within about 10 minutes, I'm going to feel not just, you know, less stressed. I'm going to feel grounded and clear about what I'm doing, why I'm here, what my goal is, et cetera. And I think the reason for that is when you have a quota, like three pages for me, at least, the first page and a half or two pages is pretty ranty. It's it's rambling. I'm like unpacking what I'm concerned about for the day. Yep. But as I get to that last page, and I think this is why the artist's way like suggests this quota of pages. By the time I get to that last page, something clicks for me. And I remember no matter what I'm overwhelmed by, let's say it's at work, you know, if I'm overwhelmed by I end up coming back to this reframing that helps me realize, you know, like, remember, you're doing this, you're working on this, because, you know, it kind of brings back my why. It's like, because you're, you know, you really care about this thing. And honestly, you love the experience, like you love learning. And I've, I've worked with an executive coach um, named Danny for, for a little while. And every time I have a challenge, he's like, oh, this is awesome. You love challenges. And yeah. I kind of have that same framing in my yeah. book. And at first he was annoying. It's like, Darn right. it. how could I forget? I waited a week to bring this challenge to him. Right. And the first thing he says is awesome. You love challenges. And I'm like, right. Dang it. That's all I needed to say. And it would have yeah. been like reframe. And, you know, you brought up stoicism earlier. It's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or stoicism. Yeah. Like there's, you know, they're, they're very intertwined and, you know, there's this idea that it's not, it's not the events of our life that disturb us. It's the interpretation and the reinterpretation of those events constantly mm. over and over. Yeah. And so taking the time to recognize what story are you telling yourself and then give yourself enough space to choose a new story helps you, helps me at least create that repetition of saying, I'm choosing a new story. And even if it takes time to integrate then still over time, eventually you will see that you're more likely to live this feeling in this story that I love what I'm doing. I'm grateful to be here. I see, like, I see the reasons I'm, I see, like, I'm able to feel gratitude for some of the most painful things in my life. I don't wish that they happened, but I can see how I am transformed by having mm -hmm. to go through these dark periods. And there's always something that you can find in there to be grateful for. But sometimes it takes getting outside of yourself to find those things. And I think that's what writing can help you do. Um, it's, it's certainly had that. It certainly had that in my life.
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm big in the recovery side of mental health. So people who've, you know, stopped drinking or whatever, and they always say the path to recovery is different for everybody. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the road to improving your well-being in your life is different for everybody. And so there are people that just can't meditate. They just can't tell themselves that story to be the observer, to be the witness, not the judge and jury, mm -hmm. which is where the conflict is with meditation. Oh, Jeff, I sat down and I just couldn't stop thinking. I'm like, well, you're judging that. You're, you're judging the fact you couldn't stop thinking. Mm -hmm. And I, I fought that for about a year, to be honest with you. And I didn't start meditating until after Seth died um, because I went with attention deficit. I just had to, I had to try to figure out a way to, I don't know. I read about it. I was curious. I'm a very curious person. A lot of recently, some of the things I've, I've tried that, um, I'm just not comfortable talking about yet on mm -hmm. a podcast. You and I talked yeah. about it on the plane. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I'm not comfortable yet. And I will, I think I'm going to, I think I'll dedicate a whole podcast to just like a solo podcast where I'll talk about this experience that I had and, and how it was life-changing for me. But mm -hmm. I think that, I think that's what makes hope and optimism tangible is this quest to always improve. Yeah. And, and you talked about, um, in a way, like, I feel like I'm a glutton for punishment sometimes because I put myself in situations where failure is more likely than success, like mm -hmm. constantly. And I always ask myself, I, you know, I could have just not started this startup. I could have just taken the money and went to the Caribbean and, and be scuba diving every day and golfing with friends. I'm, I'm just not wired that way. And at yeah. least not at this age, not at this age. Maybe I will be at, you know, 10 more years, but, and so I, I always put myself in these positions where people are like, why are you doing this, Jeff? What, what, and I, I don't, I can't answer that sometimes. I don't, I don't know if I'm just addicted to being a risk taker. Now I'm older. It's not physical risk taking. You know, when I was younger, maybe it was a little more physical stuff. Um, now it's more financial risks that I take, you know, <laughs> which probably don't make any sense as a retired financial advisor. I, I wouldn't be telling somebody my age to be doing these things, but I just kind of like you, I always feel like I need to challenge myself. And, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure as you go through your different decades of your life, you'll accomplish certain things, but you're going to say, there's more, <laughs> there's, mm -hmm. there's always something more, you know, to be learning or to be experiencing or to be embracing or, you know, being, um, philanthropic about, you know, there's so many different things to be involved in that makes life worth living. And that's where you look back at the, the, um, suicide issue we have in this country. And I, I have to think that the majority of people that decided to end their life, if they had a chance to redo, uh, they wouldn't, you know, mm -hmm. it's just that moment of, um, uh, emptiness and lack of, you know, ho hopelessness, you know, that they, they do that. And I've been there. I, I told you in the plane, I mean, it was that Christmas after my wife died. You know, I, I was, I was a piece of ending my life. And man, was that, was that a horrific moment to have that thought mm -hmm. pop in my head? And I'm like, this isn't my thought. I've never had this thought before. Why would it show up now? You know, years after this happened. So one thing I was going to ask you about is what's your thoughts on expectations that we have and then preparing for the inevitability of pain in our lives that is unavoidable. Mm -hmm. Suffering, suffering's a choice. Pain is, is unavoidable. 
Um, I think I got that from Viktor Frankl. He actually said suffering is my opportunity and I kind of rephrased it, but so I don't know what you want to take out of what I just said. Those, those are all little bits of comments I made, but it keeps going. I keep getting compelled to pull back into what can I do to be an advocate to improve people's lives? And, you know, um, I'm curious if you have other options that you use other than meditation. I know you, you're very heavy into your diet mm-hmm. exercise. How important is diet exercise and like sleep come into play for optimal mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much we can unpack in, in those questions. And, but first I just want to say, you know, I'm so grateful that you share so much with me on the plane and that you share so much of your story in an environment like this, because I think most of life is lived by, by people who don't really get to hear about the, the biggest challenges that people face around them. And I know, you know, if you look at, at, at Silicon Valley founders, you know, oftentimes you see some of the like the press and it, it seems, you know, kind of glitzy and exciting, but mm-hmm. it is, it is really remarkable. Like how many of like, fa- how many founders are really struggling with yeah. suicidal ideation yeah. and yep. getting so wrapped up in their company that the idea of their company failing is like a personal, it, it's not just a personal failure. It's like me, if my company fails, like my entire identity is wrapped up in it. And like, I am yeah. a failure. And I let down I so many potential people I could have helped had it succeeded. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think that one of the first steps to being able to address and respond and and heal some of these experiences is one just being able to be honest and talk about them. And I think for you and I, you know, we I think we both cried on the plane. Yep. Because um, we just went there, you know. And yeah. I I when I meet you know somebody like you who's just willing to have a really deep conversation, I I think of you as like a scuba diver. It's like mm. we're not snorkeling. We're not just like you know, we're not talking about the weather up at the surface. It's like, how deep do you want to go right now? Cause like, I'll go there with you. Right. Most of us don't really have people like that who will go there with us. Do you think you can be too vulnerable, Bailey? I mean, you think, do you think it's, do you you think there's a, I don't, I mean that two ways. One, the person listening to you could say, wow, this is, I don't need to know all this. Mm -hmm. Or do you think by being vulnerable all the time, you just keep reliving those painful memories? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that in conversation, uh, in in my opinion, like a healthy conversation involves mutual respect. Mm-hmm. And I think having respect for the person that you're talking to is a matter of checking in with yourself. Um, you don't have to ask them necessarily in conversation, but kind of just checking in and seeing like, okay, is this person like feeling uncomfortable with how deep mm-hmm. this conversation has gone, like how mm-hmm. like vulnerable this conversation is? And if so, like, let's, let's go back up. You know, it's like, it's not our jobs in conversation to like, you know, unpack our deepest secrets right. and our most you know traumatic experiences with someone who isn't ready to go there. But I think as mm. long as you're, as long as we're checking in, when we're able to be really vulnerable like that, and someone is willing to go there with us, I think it can be healing for, for both parties. I and too. I think that when it comes to reliving trauma, and I am by no means an expert on this, but I think that when you're reliving something and you're, you're sharing a story, I think you have an opportunity, even just for yourself, as you bring that up to choose, like, am I looking at this and like 
giving myself, I'm thinking back to that, like love foam again, as I'm going into this place and reliving this experience, am I like giving myself the love that I need to like process this? Like you Mm -hmm. said earlier, you know, it's, it's withholding the information, the not information, it's withholding the emotion and like trying to keep ourselves from like crying, for example, that like really is uncomfortable. Once we Mm -hmm. actually cry and process the emotion, nobody feels worse after they cry. Like when we cry, we release hormones that help us like, ah, like feel more grounded and at peace. And so those emotions are a cycle. And if Mm -hmm. you get really vulnerable and that helps you process your emotions, then I can see how like, oh, is it a negative thing? Only if your idea of an emotion being negative is that it's a painful emotion. But if you recognize or you interpret or you frame emotions as being a cycle that we go through as part of, you know, our human experience of having a brain with emotional capacity, right? then it's, it can be seen as a gift, you know, it's Mm. like, oh, wow, I'm able to experience so much. And even though it's painful right now and I have to like process through it and like come to tears, et cetera. Yeah. That's that's actually why I'm here. You know, like I'm here to have these moments. And I think a lot of us are really starving for connection. And I think by being vulnerable, we are able to meet someone at a place that's really different from where many, many of us live, which is online and social media, Mm -hmm. seeing the good things. I think seeing the challenges helps us to really relate to people on a more human level. Very beautifully well put. And the way you articulated that, I, I'm thinking in my own mind about this concept. And maybe it's maybe it's the IFS, the individual, again, going back to that. It's like we're all equipped with these um, survival instincts inside of us just through, you know, many years of evolution. Um, you know, the strongest uh, attributes survive, right? You know, strong cells survive. So we're accumulation of our strongest abilities that have survived over the years. So we all have it inside of us. It's just that it hasn't been nurtured correctly. Maybe it was slightly damaged as a child. Maybe you were abused, maybe you were neglected. And so that, that, that thing inside of you, that's that survival skill got a little bit off, off track and now needs to be recalibrated. And I think things like a podcast I do, I'm meeting new people every day. And I'm, I'm really intent, intention, intentionally focused on avoiding the echo chamber concept, you know, where it's like you and I sit here and we talk about something and we both validate each other and we pat each other on the back. And then I go to the next person do the same thing. I think one of the problems with mental health is that we are very much focused on that is that, you know, Hey, I gave my son Adderall. So I just want to go find other parents that gave their kids Adderall and just convince myself that was the right decision. Um, or my son died from fentanyl. So now I'm just anti fentanyl. I'm going to find, you know, hundred parents that lost their kids and we're going to go protest. And, and, um, you know, it's like, it's very tempting to do that throughout life, but I really like to just find people that, um, maybe a combination of things that I, I enjoy. And then maybe some things I've not been exposed to, you know, some new alternatives, because to think that we've conquered the tools to build that tool that toolbox of, you know, or the arrows in the quiver to think we found all the arrows in the quiver to perfect mental, mental health. You know, it's just comical to think that 
yeah, you know, we have so much further to go than how far we've gone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of some of those arrows in the quiver, I really, Mm -hmm. I really love that analogy. And a minute ago, you brought up things like sleep and diet and exercise. And, you know, I, I feel like in terms of some of those quivers and some of those tools that we can use, sometimes it's easy to get you know, to focus on anything other than some of our fundamental basic human needs. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, part of my mental health journey has looked like prioritizing my sleep, my diet, my movement in a way that I used to say, like, those are nice to haves. Like, especially a lot of founders, you know, we we kind of pride ourselves on being able to work more than anybody else. And so that means you know, not sleeping, not giving yeah. ourselves time outside, not right. eating regular right. healthy meals. Like, yep. I don't know if you've heard of Soylent, but there was a time where like I was basically drinking my meals instead of making time to actually sit down and like eat yep. or cook. Like that was such a luxury. Yep. I told myself I couldn't have, <laughs> <clears throat> but it's amazing how sometimes, you know, especially for those of us who have attention deficit. Being able to do things like give ourselves time outside to engage in the types of activities that help us get into flow. The flow state activities are another place where your mind naturally, like your the like anxiety, the story in your mind naturally kind of gets flushed out because when you're doing something that's that creates that in the zone experience, that flow yeah. state, whether you get that by skateboarding or painting, or playing music, like whatever that thing is, the way that our brains respond and like create that flow state experience flushes out anxiety because it focuses, when you're in flow, your mind is completely focused on the present. And Mm. since anxiety is usually worrying about the future, what could go wrong, and depression is so often tied to ruminating on the past and what has happened, what has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Those are not present tense experiences, right? It's either about future or past, which means that when you're totally in the present, those experiences and that chatter gets flushed out of your system because you're so focused on this moment. And it's, it's yeah. yeah. And it's, it's amazing how much, you know, when we talk about mental health, we don't recognize like our bodies have, so much capacity to transform our experience, you know, going Mm. for me, like going a certain amount of time without like good sleep. Sometimes Mm. that's the first answer. Like, okay, number one, are you getting eight hours of sleep? Mm -hmm. Number two, are you eating enough and regularly for a long time? I wasn't. Yeah. And you know, three, am I, am I moving my body getting outside in a way that produces endorphins that naturally like give me a, like a, a a high that lasts for Mm -hmm. a long time. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, we forget that, you know, getting outside or working out, et cetera, like it might seem like a drag at the beginning, but everyone feels better after a workout, you know, like your body's like awesome. Like this is great. And it's amazing how often we look for solutions outside of our, our most basic human needs. And I was, I was thinking about this when you and I were on the plane Because the reason, like the first thing you said to me is you commented on my 
conversation with the flight attendant. That's right. Because I was, I was so going, impressed. <laughs> I was about to, it looked like I was going to miss my flight. I'd had a, a very, very long delay. I forgot and about that. That's exactly, I'm like, oh my God, she's so calm and you're so nice <laughs> to the lady. And you're like, everyone else is wigging out and trying to get in line. And you were just so, and I'm like, I want to talk to her because there's mm -hmm. something about her that's got this Zen thing going, you know, and I could just irradiate it off you. And honest to God, that, that was where I knew I had to ask you some questions on the plane because that's atypical today. We just see everyone yelling and screaming and cell phones out and they want to post how mad, mm -hmm. how rude the flight attendant was. And you were just like, you were just a fresh, a, a breath of fresh air. Thank you. On, on, a, on, a, on a normal situation where airlines get so much negative press, you know. Thank you. And I really appreciate that. And at the moment when you first said like, wow, that was maybe like the calmest yeah. <laughs> interaction I've ever seen between a flight attendant and ever. a passenger <laughs> who's going to miss ever connecting flight. Yep. And I remember like in my head thinking like, yeah, well, I just ate lunch, so. I'm not panicking right now. <laughs> and it's I'm not funny. always like this. He caught me at a good moment. <laughs> well, no, it was just a, it was a reminder for me that, oh, right. When I meet my basic human needs. Now, I don't think I've ever, you know, yelled at a flight attendant before. Like, oh, right. gosh, I don't think right. that's really in my character. But, you know, I did notice that there wasn't any like when, when you were like, oh, wow, that was really calm. It's like I wasn't trying to be calm. I right. was just feeling really secure. And I had right. this moment where I realized, you know, how interesting that when I meet my needs and I had just, I was like, you know, I'm going to get food before the plane, even though I know that I could get a meal two hours from now. And I remember right. realizing, oh, in the past, I might not have done that for myself. Mm -hmm. In the past, I might have said like, oh, I got to get some stuff done. So I'll wait to eat later. And just meeting some of our most basic human needs can help us like stay grounded in those really even just like frustrating times yeah and i remember getting off the plane and you know of course i, I did meet i did miss my collect my connecting flight and i did get stuck in denver that night yeah and after meeting you i was like wow that was so meant to be and i'm so mm -hmm. grateful if it took me missing my connection to have that conversation with the flight attendant to give you an opportunity to start talking to me then mm -hmm. it was so worthwhile and we never know when something that we're walking into that might seem really frustrating yeah. is actually closing a door and opening a door yeah. that might be even better than yeah. getting to Detroit on time. Yeah, I mean, man, there's just so much that people watching this are going to, I hope they get from this because what I got from that random chance encounter on the airplane is that there's a lot more Jeff Johnston's and Bailey Farron's out there that are seated next to planes that for some reason don't engage in conversation and they miss these opportunities to have a friend now, have somebody that, you know, I could, I could talk to on the startup uh, world if I'm struggling or down, like, Hey, give me, give me a few things to focus on. You've already said a few things today that, you know, um, that I'm now thinking, okay, I like that idea, like small wins, you know, like what can I do today to win the day? You know, I get thinking about my startup and the exit strategy. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I get so damn far ahead of myself <clears throat> that if I don't just do four or five little things today, then I'll never get to that. Yeah. 
that, that anxiety world that I'm creating that doesn't exist, right? That, that day doesn't exist. I'm creating that day in my mind and I'm pinning anxiety to it. Yeah. I don't have to do that. I mean, that's a choice. That's a conscious choice, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I love, I love this idea of small wins because I think as, you know, as anyone working on a project where there's some, there's some idea of success in the future, it's easy to be so focused on that, you know, that future situation that you have to get to that we don't recognize that like, once I know what needs to happen and I've like reverse engineered, you know, goals to know what yeah. I have to achieve to get there, you don't need to keep living over there. For me, it has been so nourishing to give myself an opportunity to see each day as being like successful. If I'm, you know, one, like, yes, I have goals that I'd like to accomplish, but I also feel successful every day when I have something that I know, like I'm looking forward to this thing tonight. I'm going to go play this sport or I'm going to go give myself time to do X, Y, Z thing. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when I go to sleep, like I feel like it was successful regardless of, regardless of what I actually did when I have those small wins and I yeah. let like each day be huh. a valuable piece of my experience, then it doesn't matter like how close I am to that far thing. Because at the end of the day, even if you achieve that big goal, that huge exit at the end of your startup. That doesn't actually change you. Good but point. the process yep. on your way to achieving that goal transforms you. Bingo. And you are you're always yep. going to be changing. That's... And so do you want to be changing in a way that gets you closer to this feeling of like peace and fulfillment? Or do yeah. you want to be changing in a way that turns you into this like goal seeking, you know, rat race animal yeah. that like needs to right. be validated by achieving certain goals in order to feel like you matter for three seconds, you mm -hmm. know? And I think that, you know, like you said earlier, like we're kind of, some of us are gluttons for punishment. Like, why do we do yeah. this? Why do we take on the hard thing? I think everyone has a certain capacity that they need to like be exercising. Like, I think if you and I went and moved to you know, different uh, tropical islands and we're just scuba mm -hmm. diving every day. For some people, that would work. But yeah. I think you and I would go a little nuts. And I, I heard this this idea once. For that, a little while. I could, yeah. I could do that for a while. I love no, scuba no, diving. No. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like for eventually we'd like, you know, we'd start chewing on the couch. Yeah. And right. I think that when you have like, you know, we you and I talked a lot about attention deficit yeah. on the plane. And, you yeah. know, when you when you have like so much moving and you have, you know, tons of thoughts and, you know, tons of capacity to just be like, you know, churning through things. Sometimes mm -hmm. it feels really good to have a project that you can sink yourself into. And yeah, so it's I no agree. surprise that we take on a lot. And right. sometimes I think a lot of people don't really see themselves as qualified to start mm -hmm. a company. Mm -hmm. And in part, it's because, I mean, no one really is qualified to start a company because you have to learn so much on the fly. <laughs> you, you qualify yourself along the way. I was going to say, if you're, if you're qualified, you waited too long. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't try to start things because they think, like, I'm not qualified. Right. When really, you know, just the fact that you have that drive to solve a certain problem or to build a certain solution means yeah. that 
Like that's the most important qualification you could have is mm. this obsession with a certain thing, a certain mm -hmm. idea, a certain problem, a certain solution, a certain topic, etc. And I think the more we take care of ourselves and focus on these small wins and, you know, have mm. pride in what we're doing, the more likely we're going to be to allow ourselves to try that thing that we've been dreaming of. And once we do, it can be a, a really beautiful outlet for us yep. to, you know, take all of that like angst that we might have and right. pour it into something that ends up feeling incredibly fulfilling during you, and after. You said small wins a few times and I want to just ask your thoughts on this. And I'm going to use a, a metaphor or an analogy about with golf, because when my son golfed competitively as a child, I used to tell him, you know, when you, when you get that birdie chance, I don't know if you're familiar with all the golf jargon, but, um, but if you get a birdie, that's like, that's like you, you're banking a small win because mm -hmm. now you get a bogey in the next hole, your birdie offsets that. Mm -hmm. And so if you go through life thinking, I need to bank small wins like birdies in golf, that I can have that double bogey. I can have that triple bogey, but it doesn't destroy my round because I had lots of birdies. So I always told Ian, cause kids have a triple bogey on a hole and their rounds over, but they could have four birdies preceding that triple bogey. But all they're going to think about is the one bad hole, but you had four really good holes. And it's that recency bias that we all have as a cognitive bias is that the most recent things that happened to us are tend we wait more, um, emotion to those things. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think with like for golf or Ian, I was, I was trying to tell him, you know, as you go through life, little wins are like birdies, yeah. you know, little wins are like an Eagle, um, that, that they're great when they happen. And it's, it's a, it's a positive thing you can put in the bank. And now down the road, something happens. Well, go back to that birdie and remember that hole because you know, that was, that was a positive thing. So I think it's all about taking two or three, four steps forward, maybe one or two, three steps back. And those steps back could be anything. It could be addiction to alcohol, could be, you know, the, the grief of, um, that's my son and my wife back there. Um, could be the grief of losing two people you care about. Could be a failure in a business, could be a failure in a marriage. Um, you know, whatever that is, those steps back need to be offset with little wins, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you just have steps back and you never get the wins and you're only waiting for the big win, you're going to be a really miserable person. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when we, sometimes we get to that big win and we hope that that's going to change us. But I think many of what us. What you're saying probably, it doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think, I, I don't, for me, I don't think it has. I've had big wins in my life and they just, they tend to go away quick and I want to do another one. Exactly. I think, you know, leading up to it, we think, well, that is going to be the thing that finally right. changes me. And if right. that's the story that we tell ourselves, I'll wait mm -hmm. until that thing to be changed, then we miss the opportunity of every small step that Enjoying is actually it. an opportunity for change yeah. every step of the way. And by the time you get to that goal, there's another goal beyond it. And I think, you know, with, with startups, for example, and, and people do startups in lots of different ways. Right. But for me, it's like, yes, I do. You know, obviously I'm very cognizant of the financial opportunity relating to the work that we're doing. But the more exciting thing to me is kind of shooting past that 
and breaching that like that opportunity to have real impact yeah. in a space that is so personal to me. Right. And and also like I've realized over the past couple of years that another goal of mine is through this process to like let this process transform me. You know, Absolutely. it kind of feels like I, I really love, you know, not just because of my company, but I love fire metaphors. I love the idea of like fire purifying metals hmm. and feeling like, like I walk through these fires and they're not comfortable. And the very fact of them being uncomfortable is how I know that there are opportunities for me to be transformed in some way. And when things like come up and you're like uncomfortable and you're growing and you feel vulnerable and it feels like an edge, it's like awesome. Yeah. That is an opportunity for the change right. that you really seek. And if you look for opportunities to be uncomfortable as your like, you know, area for transformation, micro transformations, mm -hmm. then that big goal out there, like you're moving towards it and that's really exciting. But whether or not you get there and if you do, you actually bring all of this other transformation with you because mm. that goal, achieving it, you want to make $10 million, you want to make $100 million, you want to make $10, whatever. Once you have it, it doesn't change you. No. And what we really, I think, yearn for is not just, we don't just want money in the bank. I have met a lot of very successful founders who are not happy people, who have who've made it. They're sure. not happy people. Right. And... I think that if you if you remember that like oh my my goal beyond financial success is to feel deeply fulfilled by the work that I'm doing and fulfilled mm -hmm. in the process that I'm creating then you're winning at every stage hmm. of your work of your company and I think when we go to sleep or when we wake up that's what really matters is that we're giving ourselves the time to feel fulfilled along the way and if you're only waiting for one big win before you celebrate your accomplishments and yourself for even trying, you've missed an opportunity to love your experience. And I, I think that you're, the experience that you're having matters so much for you. When you look back at the end of your life, like mm -hmm. that's what you're going to look back on. You're going to feel the victories, sure, but you're going to look back on what kind of experience you had. And if it was super meaningful and that's where you're going to tell stories. Yeah. The, the wisdom comes in talking to people on their deathbed and then you really can encapsulate what life's all about right there yeah. in that moment, you know, when they have a minute to live or whatever, if you have the opportunity to know when you're going to die, you just don't talk about the nicest car you ever had. You don't talk yeah. about the best vacation you ever went on, like, you know, some fancy place, but you talk about the people you were with on those vacations and you talk a lot about regret. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of older people, there's, there was a book out a while ago where they interviewed a hundred, could have been a hundred centurions. I'm not sure what the book was, but it was all, and, and all the wisdom in the book was unbelievable, but it was just so simple. Mm -hmm. It was like, what, what do you most remember about your life? And it was all the things that you would think time with family and friends and none of it was money. Um, mm -hmm. and then what, what do you regret the most? And that's where a lot of times you saw things like, how much I worked, you know, my pursuit of success. Um, there's something about this that we need to be learning yeah. from, you know, there really is. And so I, I tell you what, this has been great. I mean, I, I, I normally my podcasts are about an hour, so you're going to break 
break the record, which is fine. I do have to do, I have to ask you this question because I think yeah. it's an opportunity. You are a role model for young women. And do you feel a sense of obligation now that you've, you know, I, I'm not going to say made it because I know in your mind, you're, you're never <laughs> going to really truly make it like me. I don't think I'm ever going to ever make it. Um, yeah. but do you feel an obligation? Do you feel honored? Do you feel humbled? I mean, what word comes to mind being a young, successful founder, CEO woman in today's, you know, male dominated almost every, my, my, my financial services industry was, you know, 92% men, but the 8% of women that were in it, they were rock stars. I mean, they were, they were ridiculous. And do you feel that sense of obligation or do you just kind of go along saying, nah, I, I don't want to overthink this too much. I'm just Bailey Farron. I'm just working mm -hmm. hard and I'm enjoying life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always, I've always felt that sense of obligation and it hasn't been tied to whether or not I've been successful. It's been more tied to the situation that I'm in. And even like, I remember in school feeling like, okay, if I'm going to be one of the only women in this science class or in this tech class, I don't just feel like I'm, you know, working hard for myself. I feel sometimes like I'm working hard on behalf, like it's not, you know, I'm not saying this is right, but kind of like as the one woman in the room, like yeah. I'm showing up for women right now Absolutely. And for, for future women who try to do this. And I remember that when I, when I first joined my startup accelerator, I was, they, they took a bet on me. I was a young woman, only, only 2% of venture investments, startup investments go to female founders. And so I was a young woman. I was 22. Mm. I was fresh out of college. I, when we, when we got into the accelerator, I actually hadn't yet graduated and we were doing this business that was like impossible to people like what GovTech, mm -hmm. public safety, like, what are you talking about? And one of one thing that has really pushed me to keep going when things get really hard, in addition to my why with the business is knowing that if I'm successful, then people like, you know, my startup accelerator and the, the investors who took a chance on me, they're more likely to take a chance on the next young yeah. female college student yeah. doing something that sounds ludicrous, but might have a huge positive impact if it's successful. And so if I don't, our, our recency bias, like you said, will kick yeah. in and people will be less likely. They, they might say to themselves unconsciously, we already tried investing in a in a young college student yeah. before and it didn't work. Yep. And so one, I, I do feel that obligation, but it's not a burden. Instead, right. it, it feels like now I've always, you know, wanted to show up and, you know, and, and be one of the most hardworking people in the room, sometimes on behalf of the women who aren't in that room. Right. And now that I've had so many of those opportunities to, to learn skills and tools that, are drastically improving my experience now, both at work and in my, my life as, you know, my experience as just being a founder. Now I'm just really excited to give back to, you know, even though I'm still young, the next generation of, right. you know, especially young women who are asking themselves maybe for the first time, like, could I actually do something about this? And well. <laughs> that question, you know, I hope that if anyone meets me or sees me or hears me talk or anything like that, I hope that they feel encouraged 
to try something that they don't feel qualified to do because they were able to see someone else who was objectively not qualified. Well, I go for can't, it. I can't begin to tell you how needed people like you are for young women because the statistics for self-harm, depression, isolation, uh, body dysmorphia for young women today, it's the highest it's ever been. Just things from cutting to, you know, um, anorexia, um, and it's magnified through social media, specifically TikTok and those outlets, those platforms where young women just are seeing every other young woman looking beautiful, you know, the, the perfect body frame, the perfect TikToks. And I think, and I know this because I've seen the demographics, but young teenage women today, it's, it's the hardest environment they've ever grown up in. And I'm not saying young teenage boys don't have it hard too. They do, but it's, I think it's specifically hard today on, on young women. Um, and I, you know, I'm cognizant of that as we build out our mental health app, as we, as I'm building out bright and I have to keep in consideration that there's going to be a lot of young women that download this app that are looking for, um, help, a guidance, a roadmap, you know, guide rails, maybe however you, whatever metaphor you want to use, um, that are going to be different from young men, young, young boys. I mean, um, the different types of anxiety, the different types of um, depression or, or even reasons why they take their own lives are, are, are different quite often. Yeah. So I applaud the timing. You, know, you had nothing to do with the timing of your age, but I mean, the fact that you are a young female CEO, you know, breaking that glass ceiling that, you know, you're, I think it's awesome. We need more people. That's one of the reasons why I really felt I needed to get you on the show is that, you know, you're a breath of fresh air uh, into a world that is so negative and so down and so critical of other people. And, you know, you talked about something about that inner critic and I want to end this with this idea that that inner critics goal is like a negative friend. Their goal is to drag you down to their level. Mm -hmm. Their goal isn't to pull you up. Their goal is to make you feel like them. Well, that's where social media is today with, with young people is that it, it wants to pull them down. It's, it's, um, the way it's designed with the algorithms and the way that, um, uh, they addict young, young minds yeah. with social media. So it's like, I, I I'm so honored to have you on the show because like I said, you just, you bring just a whole different set of a lens to this. For me, it's mental health, you know, for you, it's, it's, um, um, structuring first responders so they can be safely taking care of other people and themselves in the mm -hmm. most expedited manner. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of in a nutshell, what, what your, your business model is. Yeah. Um, well, how can people reach you? I, I know I'm gonna have a lot of people ask me about you. Um, what's the easiest way? I mean, do you, do you speak? I mean, do you, do you travel and speak at conferences? And I know yeah. people are going to want to get you on podcasts. And, um, <laughs> again, I'm just, um, I'm so honored to have this opportunity to be honest with you, Bailey. It's been, it's been great. And I, I hope, um, well, I'm confident that you and I'll find ways to collaborate down the road at some capacity. Um, you know, ultimately our mission's the same and that's to help people improve their lives, uh, you know, whatever way that we can, but how, how do people reach you? What's the easiest way to be in contact with you? And then we'll end it yeah. with that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll answer the question about speaking first. Yes. Yeah. I, so more recently, I, I, I speak at a lot of first responders resiliency conferences, but 
I've also recently spoken at a Women Impact Tech Conference, and I, I hope to do more of that, especially, you know, for for women who are like who have experienced burnout and are kind of you know getting getting back to to work after going through a lot of you know a lot of challenges where mm-hmm. what we might need to you know what we might need to get through that process is some of the tools that you and I talked about you know learning how to give ourselves what we need you know mm-hmm. get those small wins etc and so um, yeah I, I do I do um, speak at conferences and. I tend to lead conversations with a lot of founders and CEOs about things like mental health. And Mm -hmm. rather than just focusing on like, how do we achieve our goals? You know, I'm really interested in the question of like, how can we achieve our goals and also have the kind of experience that is like we talked about transformative and fulfilling in the process Mm -hmm. of achieving those goals. So those are the types of types of organizations and events that I've I've spoken with. And I think the, you know, the best way to reach me is probably through Instagram or my website. Um, my Instagram is, is bailey.farron. And um, that's a place where I'll, I'll typically post about events that I'm going to be participating in or even hosting. I've really loved hosting uh, virtual and in-person reading groups with women who are focused, mm. you know, that are thinking about either you know, changing their habits, setting goals, or self-care. Those are the three awesome. areas that I um, that I love leading groups around. And so, messaging me on on Instagram is a really good way to to get connected and uh, maybe even participate in one of those groups. Or they could just meet you on a plane that got delayed. That's... Or they could meet me <laughs> on a plane. <laughs> a random encounter. Uh, no, I. I um... Again, that's what makes travel fun is you get to meet people from all over the world. And um, uh, sometimes you can learn a lot. Sometimes you learn how not to do things. Um, And again, the way you are compassionate and empathetic to the situation, um, I was aware of that. And again, if you're in a situation and anyone watching this is in a situation where you see somebody do something that you're, wow, that's pretty cool. Go up to that person, tell them that, Let let them know that. So a, maybe you'll develop a conversation like we did, or that person will feel like, Hey, I, I need to do this more often because, you know, right now, man, it's just, um, it, it, when you watch some of the stuff on, on, on the social media, just how just impatient and rude people are to other people. And just, yeah. we're all trying to get somewhere. We all have deadlines. We all, you know, we all at times have financial guns to our head. We all have, um, relationships that may not be the best, you know? So let's be a little bit more empathetic with people. And so um, I try to look at people as stories now. And this has helped Mm -hmm. me, Bailey, a lot. I think I told you that in the plane is like when I see people, I just don't see what I used to see. I used to see a CEO in a suit and think that guy's rich. I used to see a, you know, a, a big weightlifter guy and think that guy's an NFL football player. You know, now I see the same body frame or the same color or the same what they're wearing, but I, I just see inside of them. Like it's weird. It's almost like an empath. Like, like I, I'm, I, I can, I don't, I don't think I'm an empath in in regards to some people think they can see things and they can, I I don't feel that way. I just feel like I'm much, much more attentive to the fact that we're all in this together 
versus we're all in individual canoes fighting against the current of life, you know, by ourselves. Nope. I'm in a big canoe with Bailey and myself Mm -hmm. and my brothers and my, you know, just that's how I feel at this stage of my life. And I think we need to have more of that, not less of it. And so again, thanks for taking the time today being on the podcast. This was great. And I'm excited to follow your, your business. Now, how many years have you been launched? Um, you, where are you so guys I, at in this stage of your, of your, is it still a startup technically, or are you, have you guys yeah. gone through the cycle? Yeah, we're definitely still a startup. So okay. we, we started the business in 2019. And at that point it was mostly like researching the problem and, you know, brainstorming the solution, mm-hmm. meeting our, like our first potential customers and getting feedback from them. So that was the first year. The second year, also COVID starting, oh, was geez. fundraising and trying to build our first product without having raised really any money. And then the next year was actually raising money and um, preparing to you know test the platform during fire season. Gotcha. And then doing that testing, we raised our second round of funding this year and on January 1st of this year, we deployed for our first major uh, natural disaster, which was a flood. Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm very proud of you. Thank <laughs> it's you. awesome what you've done. And I think um, lots of young eyes, men and women are seeing young people, um, you know, start following their dreams, you know, whatever it may be, you know, never, never, um, never give up. It sounds cliche ish, but the reality is it's true. You know, um, well, listen, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. And, um, it's been my honor. Okay. Mine too. Thank you very much. 